Hi there, everyone. I am your host, Kinsey Grant, and this is Thinking is Cool, the show that promises to make your next conversation better than your last and to never, ever, ever bury the lead. Today, I want to talk about sex. Truth be told, anyone who knows me in a personal context will tell you that I love to talk about sex and not in a weird fail the Bechdel test kind of a way, just in a much more anthropological, sociological kind of way. I find it really deeply intriguing to interpret how people respond to honest conversations about sex and sexuality. And if there's one thing I love doing more than talking about that stuff, it's dissecting pop culture and its innate ability to both shape and reflect humanity with nearly surgical precision. So... You can imagine my unbridled delight when I saw last week that some of my favorite podcasters and TikTokers had begun talking honestly and critically about the portrayal of sex in media, inspired by the very much anticipated and very much naked second season of the HBO show Euphoria. The internet began asking, at long last, how many penises is too many penises? At what point does a director's requesting full frontal go from art house to cheap gimmick? A podcast I love called Culture Club made an episode about this very idea earlier this week and titled it Sex Sells, But Should It? Euphoria's second season is only eight episodes long, but these questions are evergreen. When, why, and how does sex on screen become gratuitous? And whose fault is it when that happens? Is on-screen sex ever a truly indispensable mechanism for advancing plot? That's what we're talking about today on Thinking is Cool. And before we get into all of that, a couple of disclaimers. Here, when I say euphoria, what I really mean is a proxy for all of these uh, so-called critically acclaimed films and TV shows that include the kind of sex that makes you second-guess every single bedroom assumption you have ever, ever made. Number two, if you are the kind of person who pretends to be on their phone anytime two characters so much as pass a wanting glance while you're watching a movie with your parents, uh, if you're the kind of person who thinks that the hand flex in the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice was peak sexiness, you're not alone. Number three, anyone who's listened to this show knows that I am pro-porn, but porn and mainstream television and film are different here. Here, I'm talking about mainstream media, not adult entertainment. But if you want to hear about that and my take on adult entertainment in the porn industry, head back to episode number one of Thinking is Cool, the show's premiere. And fourth and finally, I'm going to talk about sex, both real and scripted, in a really honest way in this episode. Um, some of the sex portrayed on TV is not healthy. If you are listening to this and it triggers any bad memories, horrific memories, repressed or painstakingly remembered, please know that I stand with you however you need me to. There are going to be some resources in the show notes if you want to talk to somebody who's a professional, but you know you can always talk to me too. Also, hello, it is me, Kinsey. Of course, popping in with an editor's note slash a fifth and final, really final disclaimer here before we jump into the meat of it. So I made this episode late last week before the fifth episode of this season of Euphoria aired. Um, that episode was very clearly a deviation from a lot of the glamorization that I'm going to talk about in this episode of Thinking is Cool. I just want you to know that I saw it. I do 100% stand by this conversation that we're about to have. I think it's an important conversation to have. And I can't wait to have it. So let's talk about sex, yeah? Nothing is off limits. Everything is on the table. Take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool, and so are you.
I'm watching this season of Euphoria with my boyfriend, Coleman. We have made it this fun little Sunday ritual to make an elaborate dinner, watch Euphoria, and then suffer through at least an hour of Euphoria-induced anxiety before we can fall asleep. Now, Euphoria is obviously not entirely realistic. It's a series about a teenage drug addict who regularly references pills and powders that I, a 27-year-old woman, truly have never heard of. Um, also, when are any of these kids doing homework or thinking about their common app essays? Do any of them have parents or curfews? And also, why did they steal white claws instead of beers from the convenience store? There are many questions that I have about Euphoria that remain unanswered. But once you look past some of these more obvious plot holes in the show, you can see that Euphoria is this far out experience crafted by the writer Sam Levinson to make us confront controversy to make us uncomfortable with the possibility that it's actually really real. Once you understand the show to be a pastiche of high school's very worst, you can see that there remains one looming question unanswered. How much nudity is too much nudity? Now, there's nothing wrong with being a prude, but I'm not one. As long as I'm not with my parents, I'm usually pretty chill about on-screen stuff, sex, you know, sex stuff. This season of Euphoria, though, I've had to cover my own eyes on more than one occasion because the sex is so in your face. It feels as if Sam Levinson, who allegedly does not employ a writer's room, writes it all himself, decided that character arcs were less important than just lots and lots of boobs. I think that's part of why there's been a change in tone from the armchair critics this season. The temperature has shifted online, and a lot of it has to do with what feels like gratuitous nudity and explicit sex. Consider this from the Daily Beast's piece, Why Have Fans Turned on HBO's Euphoria? Quote, season two started off with two exciting developments, a shocking hookup between, oh, also spoilers. Okay, continuing with the quote. A shocking hookup between Cassie and Nate and a flirtation between fan favorites Fezco and Lexi. Levinson has been mostly interested in depicting the former, particularly Cassie's obsession with Nate and explicit sex scenes of the two of them. This affair has outweighed other storylines, including the central character, Rue, and her struggles with sobriety, end quote. That's what I'm thinking about so much this week. A show about a teen heroin addict is now a show about that teen heroin addict's classmates having what I would describe as a seriously toxic, unhealthy, manipulative, and dangerous sexual relationship, and doing it all on screen. There's little implying sex. The sex just happens right in front of you. There's no poetic closing of the door, no shots of hands intertwined passionately, no inclusion of that tender moment afterward when all parties' minds are racing and nerves are spiking. It's just sex, often troubling sex, on screen, right there. And as it turns out, Sam Levinson had planned for even more sex than we're seeing this season. The actor and Euphoria star Sydney Sweeney recently told The Independent this about her time playing Cassie on the show. Quote, Sam is amazing, she says. There are moments when Cassie was supposed to be shirtless, and I would tell Sam, I don't really think that's necessary here. He was like, okay, we don't need it. I've never felt like Sam has pushed it on me or is trying to get a nude scene into an HBO show. When I didn't want to do it, he didn't make me, end quote. I include that quote here because, frankly, it's hard to imagine more sex on a show like this one. There were, and this is not an exaggeration, 71 penises shown in season one of Euphoria. And expanding from just Euphoria, there were at least 80 instances of nudity on Game of Thrones, a show with 73 total episodes. I have seen actor Sam Hewen's butt more times than I've seen my own throughout five seasons of Outlander. The question I have today, 
Is any of that sex or gratuitous nudity or portrayal of assault or worse ever really necessary? Does the inclusion of explicit sexual acts on screen ever make a storyline stronger? Do we really need to see sex to drive plot? Or do television people just do it because they know we'll talk about it? Is on-screen sex ever an indispensable mechanism for plot development? I could argue both yes and no, so I'm going to argue both yes and no. Let's start with yes. Humans often like to say that we are complex, but really we are not. In many ways, we are ruled by a few self-evident truths. Like I talked about last week, we seek abundance. Humans crave community and connection. And perhaps above all else, we think about sex a lot. Sexuality is an enormous driving force of culture, of community, of life itself. It shapes our actions, and it's something we are often consumed by. There's nothing wrong with that. Casually, thinking about sex is chill and normal and, for the most part, harmless. For art to really mimic life and all its complexities, sex and sexuality have to be a component. I think portraying realistic sex, awkward, silly, happy, emotional, comfortable, uncomfortable, all of it, I think that's important. And when done right, sex on screen and in media can be a realistic reflection of one of the biggest elements of human nature. So what does it mean to do sex right? In trying to figure it out, I did quite a bit of unsavory Googling. I racked my brain for TV episodes that the girlies group chat has um, <clears throat> recommended. I found, courtesy of editorial assistant Natalie, a podcast called Lacey and Flynn Have Sex during which, in every episode, the titular couple, Lacey and Flynn, have sex live on the show. I did the work, and I did not come up with a long list, but we all know it's not the size of the ship but the motion of the ocean, so here's my list of sex done right. I think normal people from the BBC did it right. I think that that library scene in Atonement is famous for a reason, and that reason is more than just Kira Knightley's green gown. I think Titanic and the steamy handprint car scene did it right. It's not really easy to figure out what exactly those pieces, those films, those TV episodes had in common that other shows don't. But I think it kind of boils down to this. Any representation of sex that feels honest is doing it right. I think that feeling of, did I really need to see that, is an indicator that what you're watching is doing it wrong. And you and I both know that feeling because we've both felt that feeling. Cersei's literal walk of shame. That locker room scene in Sex Life that launched 1,000 Is It Fake or Is It Real debates. Most of the... I can't say this word. No, I'm going to do it. I'm an adult. Most of the post-coital dialogue in the show Scenes from a Marriage. And still, I watched all of that. I want to recognize the moment that we're in because I think it's important context for answering this question about sex as an irreplaceable plot mechanism. First... I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that we have been in the throes of a pandemic that meaningfully hamstrung physical interaction for two years. I went into the pandemic single, and I can tell you this much. The only action I was getting was the heat from my laptop sitting on my legs every single night. Physical touch on television was a big part of remembering life pre-pandemic when we were in the worst of it. But I think at the same time, that very pandemic also changed the way that we feel about watching people have sex on screen after two years of being at home. But many of us are not necessarily stuck at home in the same way we were before. The screen is not our only portal to physical connection anymore, and it feels as if writers' rooms have missed that memo. I think that's in large part what contributes to this feeling of ickiness. And second, 
We're living in a post-OnlyFans world. Nudity and sexuality are interpreted differently today than they were just a handful of years ago. And for a whole lot of reasons, that's amazing. We are better understanding sex work, even if we have a ways to go. We're celebrating sexuality when it's healthy and believing survivors when it isn't. These are all good developments, and they developed in lockstep with the HBOification of prestige TV. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Sesame Street needs to do a piece on pegging. Which brings me to the counter-argument. Is on-screen sex ever an indispensable mechanism for plot development? No. Sex scenes, and we're talking the kind of sex scenes that make you wonder if the actors didn't just, you know, you know, you know are usually deeply interesting. They are sometimes memorable. They're often stirring, whether for good or bad reasons, but they're never really necessary. There are ways to imply that sex, whether positive or not, has happened without literally showing sex. Viewers are savvy, and they know what that shadowy door closing means. They know what two feet at the bottom of a bed mean. They know what streaked mascara and smudged lipstick and a pile of clothes on the floor mean. Let's give them more credit. It's not like sex can't be implied without showing something over the top. Again, I urge you to think back to that hand on the steamy window in Titanic. I was a kid when I saw it for the first time, and I knew what it meant. Like I mentioned at the beginning, I listened to an episode of the podcast Culture Club about on-screen sex that heavily inspired this episode of Thinking is Cool. I found the comments from the hosts, Maggie and Jasmine, to be so insightful and honest— that I asked them to chime in on thinking is cool as well. So here's what Maggie from Culture Club said about the fine line of including sex in media. I think sex is a natural part of the human experience and omitting it completely from cinema would be stupid, doesn't make sense at all. But I do think directors and people involved should think twice about the reasoning behind this. Is it purely for aesthetics? Is it for the clicks? Is it for that voyeurism that audiences might crave? Or is it actually propelling the plot forward? And at times, I think we mainly lean into the former category, but I definitely think there's space for it, for sure. She continued to make an important point. There are people whose job it is to ensure that actors are safe and audiences are accounted for when sex scenes are shot on set. They're called intimacy coordinators. That's all to say that I don't think sex on screen should be banned at all. I definitely think that um, it can coexist with sex positivity. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. For instance, I do appreciate the rise of intimacy coordinators on set. Um, Granted that Euphoria does have one and Sydney Sweeney has mentioned that she has always felt comfortable because of that. There's a way to do on-screen sex right. Sometimes that involves an intimacy coordinator and an MPAA review. Other times it involves no sex at all. There's a way to communicate that sex was had, connections were established, plot was moved forward without the full frontal. And going without the full frontal forces writers and directors to focus on the plot itself, the story itself, instead of the cheap, gimmicky headlines they know they'll get for pushing a boundary that was actually just fine being unpushed. Here's what Jasmine from Culture Club said. Both Maggie and I say in the latest episode of Culture Club that on-screen sex can be a plot device, but quite rarely. Sometimes sex can be insinuated through like the closing of a door or what someone's wearing the next day, which makes it easier on actors and intimacy coordinators. But we also need to think about the portrayal of healthy sex versus unhealthy sex. 
So in instances of sexual assault and rape on screen, most of the time that is simply trauma porn. It doesn't add anything to the plot device and yeah, it's just trauma porn for both the viewers and the actors. I believe that if your book, movie or TV show needs to show the physical act to progress the plot sometimes, then perhaps it's just lazy writing. You know what earns more viewers than taking advantage of the physical appearances of actors? Writing good scripts. Writing good scripts. Side note, am I giving them exactly what they want by making this podcast episode inspired by a television show with a ton of nudity? Maybe. But I'll be damned if I don't take the opportunity to meet you at the intersection of pop culture and doing the dirty. But anyway, I digress. Regardless of my potential complicity, gratuitous nudity in mainstream television, however we define it, appears to be, in my view, problematic. I'm pretty sure that's where I land on the issue. And the reason why I'm pretty sure is because this next part of the podcast you're about to hear... It came pouring out of me the second I decided to pursue this episode. I seriously wrote it in like three minutes flat. So here it is. These are minors. On Euphoria, most of the main ensemble of characters are supposed to be minors under 18 years old. I see the kind of sex that characters are having on Euphoria, characters who are, again, supposed to be in high school. And I compare that to the kind of sex I was having when I was 16 or 17. There is no comparison because I wasn't having sex. And that's not anything to do with morality. It's just I was a late bloomer. There's nothing wrong with being sexually active as a teenager so long as protection and consent and awareness of consequences are present. But I do have to wonder what today's teenagers think they're supposed to be doing when they see characters engaging in sexual activity that could only really be described as manipulative warfare, if not predatory. Kids are smarter today than they used to be, but let's not forget that first and foremost, they're kids. And second, television and film are models. It's a pretty universal experience. Before I became sexually active myself, television and film were the only places that I saw sex happening. The shows and movies informed what I thought sex would be like before I knew what worked for me. Movies and TV have a duty to represent real life and its trials and tribulations, yes, but at the same time, art shapes culture and culture shapes actions. If the sex that's modeled for young people in media today is brutal and harsh and transactional and maybe even illegal, I'm worried. The closest thing I had to a euphoria when I was a teenager was the show Gossip Girl. At the time, that show was read the riot act for its glorification of sex, drugs, deceit, and gilded age excess. But for all the times that Chuck Bass employed sex workers or Serena Vanderwoodson banged a stranger, we never really saw the deed being done. It was all put a little more delicately, and it was very, very obvious that I, small-town homecoming Queen Street A student from Florida, was not going to live the life that Serena or Blair were living. There was an element of conjecture that allowed me, a high schooler when that show aired, to let my imagination fill in the gaps. Today, that's gone. There is nothing left to the imagination. And perhaps most concerningly, Rue's drug addiction is really the only major lifestyle differentiation between the average high schooler in America today and the Euphoria Ensemble. I know I kind of sound like a boomer, but I can't believe that there won't be ramifications of my teenage cousin watching a show like Euphoria before she's had a chance at adulthood, before she's realized what's good, passionate, fun, consensual, healthy sex I don't want her to think that Nate Jacobs is the norm. I don't want her to think that sex is a tool for getting what you want out of somebody. 
I don't want her to think that sex is damaging or dangerous. Because often, it's not. And I don't see that portrayed on a show like Euphoria. And there you have it. That was my idea of why not just suggesting, but flat out showing the character of Cal Jacobs having and filming underage sex is just not worth it. That's my way of putting it, but I think Jasmine from the Culture Club podcast put it even better when I asked her about teenagers interpreting sex from media, so here is what Jasmine said. On one hand, it's a realistic portrayal of how teenagers and boys in particular think about sex. The manipulation, mind games, slut-shaming, and immaturity is really similar to things that I myself experienced in high school. On the other hand of Euphoria, the sex does feel quite grown up from cat experimenting with online sex work and casual, seemingly unsafe sex to friends with benefits, I do think that it's a fine line between showing the reality of teen sex and then glamorizing it. I read in a study by the University of Agriculture and Technology, Kenya, that just over a quarter of adolescents surveyed said that they get information about sex from television and 37.9% reported that they first learn about sex while watching TV, which is obviously huge. So in the same way that porn doesn't represent real-life sex, TVs, TV shows, and movies should go in the same basket. I think now would be a good time for a little self-reflection. Back when I was in college, my six, yes, six, roommates and I would gather in the living room on our big, gross, sectional couch on Sunday afternoons to watch something together. It was a ritual, bonding, hangover curing, it was bliss. But usually, we would choose to watch something especially steamy. We were 21-year-old girls living in a house of seven 21-year-old girls. It is what it is. We watched episode seven of Outlander with an almost religious intensity. We paused, ogled, and rewound the airplane hangar scene of Pearl Harbor on more than one occasion. We once had a movie marathon for which everybody had to come with a film that they thought best represented their sexual awakening. We played right into the nudity on screen trap, took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. While my experience watching television and films today is very, very different, this reflection makes me wonder if we are maybe part of the problem. We can decry the gratuitous use of sex and graphic scenes in media, but do they exist because we are all so horny? We want to see this stuff. Ratings for shows like Euphoria and Game of Thrones and others show that we are lapping it up, boobs and butts and all. So what does that say about us? That's what I want you to think about this week. We're all thinking about sex, and that's normal. But are we the ones hand-carving space for the worst kind of sex scenes on screen? How can sex scenes not be the worst? What makes some of them feel so good and natural and honest? Are any of them really necessary? At the end of the day, should sex sell? I'll be thinking about it, and I hope you will be too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I will be back next week with another fun one. In the meantime, I'm Kinsey Grant, and remember, thinking is cool, and so are you.